The Rothschilds and Nobels. The Dutch royal family. The Rockefellers. These early titans of the oil industry and their corporate shells pioneered a new model for amassing and expanding fortunes hitherto unheard of. They were the scions of a new oligarchy, one built around oil and its control, from wellhead to pump. But it was not just about money. The monopolization of this, the key energy resource of the 20th century, helped secure the oligarchs not just wealth, but power over the lives of billions. The Rockefeller Foundation and like-minded organizations embarked on a program so ambitious that it almost defies comprehension. They transformed the practice of medicine. As usual, the oligarchs that funded this change were also there to profit from it. Pharmaceuticals provided a lucrative new opportunity for the oligarchs, but in a turn-of-the-century America that was still largely based on naturopathic herbal remedies, it was a tough sell. The oligarchy went to work changing that. In 1901, John Dee established the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research. The institute recruited Simon Flexner, a pathology professor at the University of Pennsylvania, to serve as its director. His brother, Abraham, was an educator who was contracted by the Carnegie Foundation to write a report on the state of the American medical education system. His study, the Flexner Report, along with the hundreds of millions of dollars that the Rockefeller and Carnegie Foundations were to shower on medical research in the coming years, resulted in a sweeping overhaul of the American medical system. Naturopathic and homeopathic medicine, medical care focused on unpatentable, unmarketable natural remedies and cures, was now dismissed as quackery. Only drug-based allopathic medicine requiring expensive medical procedures and lengthy hospital stays was to be taken seriously. The fortunes of Carnegie, Morgan, and Rockefeller financed surgery, radiation, and synthetic drugs. They were to become the economic foundations of the new medical economy. The takeover of the medical industry was accomplished by the takeover of the medical schools. Well, the people that we're talking about, Rockefeller and Carnegie in particular, came to the picture and said, we will put up money. They offered tremendous amounts of money to the schools that would agree to cooperate with them. The donor said to the schools, we're, we're giving you all this money. Now, would it be too much to ask if we could put some of our people on your board of directors to see that our money is being spent wisely? Almost overnight, all of the major universities received large grants from these sources and also accepted one, two, or three of these people that I mentioned on their board of directors and the schools literally were taken over by the financial interests that put up the money. Now what happened as a result of that is that the schools did receive uh, an infusion of money. They were able to build new buildings. They were able to add expensive equipment to their laboratories. They were able to hire top-notch teachers. But at the same time as doing that, they skewed the whole thing in the direction of pharmaceutical drugs. That was the efficiency in philanthropy. The doctors from that point forward in history would be taught pharmaceutical drugs. All of the great teaching institutions in America were captured by the pharmaceutical interests in this fashion. And it's amazing how little money it really took to do it. So unfortunately, I think one of the problems with medical training is they're not actually training doctors to be critical thinkers. 
but the, to sort of uh, accept whatever is the wisdom of the day. So then you want to look at where does the wisdom of the day come from. And you think, oh, the doctors are probably reading medical journals and looking at the methodology section and the data. That doesn't happen. They're lucky if they glance at the abstracts, and so often the abstracts are spun. They're not actually consistent with what's in the data. So you see money sort of really governing medical education, continuing medical education, what doctors learn at their offices, what young residents learn. So money is greasing the storytelling at every step of the way, and, and it goes all the way from money greasing what the academic psychiatrists say to what the ordinary doctor in his office learns about. So everywhere what you're seeing is a commercialized a sort of presentation of supposed scientific information. It's so funny because I can imagine myself being one of those doctors. I was one of those doctors with like, who couldn't contain the eye roll, you know, about these these questions we don't have time for about your natural remedies and something you read on on a blog, you know. Um, these are the hallowed halls of, of legitimate medicine. Please take your concerns <laughs> elsewhere, you know. And I absolutely get what it is to defend something that you've invested so much in. And, and it's, it's really a religion in the end, you know. Uh, my mentor, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez, always talked about, he worked at Memorial Sloan Kettering for a time, and he said, you know, it's got all the trappings of religion with the, the white coat costumes and, you know, the priests with their special language and, you know, the, the doting, worshiping patients who come to pay their respects. And there isn't the room for conversation about what's right for each given individual. And that's already a red flag, right? Whenever the science is settled or whenever there's not um, room for inquiry, we're dealing with dogma and what's often been called scientism, which is the worship of a, a certain kind of approach to science as if it's a destination rather than a process. And then, you know, the other problem you, you do see, of course, is, well, you think the medical journals. Well, the, the former editors of the medical journals like JAMA and New England Journal of Medicine and British, uh, uh, BMJ, British Medical Journal, they've all said that like basically we became vehicles for, for uh, sort of story laundering. In other words, they began where they couldn't even trust what was being published in their own journals because of this corrupt process. And then you also have the problem that uh, advertisements are going to the medical journals. That's what they rely on for to, you know, um, fund their operations. So if, if we deconstruct this storytelling process in our society, this information that gets out to the public, to prescribing doctors, what you really see at every step of the way from the beginning of the generation of the evidence space is a story of commerce, a story of creating a story and then disseminating that story that will support a, a market, support a product. And that's what you see at every step of the way. The oligarchy birthed entire medical industries from their own research centers and then sold their own products from their own petrochemical companies as the cure. So, you know, when 87, I heard the chemical corporations, the poison cartel, which is also the big pharma, people think agriculture is here, medicine is here. No, the same criminal corporations gave us agrochemicals. They gave us bad medicine that creates more disease than it solves. So big pharma, big ag, big poison, all one. I try to convince you it's more and more complicated, that there's a thousand different diseases, that there's 10,000 different drugs to treat those diseases. Then. But in reality, what started to deconstruct that world was the realization that the cancer I was studying under the microscope when I was devising chemotherapy 
happen to be really the exact same process as an ulcer in the ankle of a diabetic patient. Again, sound totally disparate, but in the end, it's only one thing, which is chronic inflammation. Inflammation is actually a normal biologic response to an injury. If we have a chronic inflammatory epidemic in the, in the world, which is a better definition than lots of diseases, then we must be overwhelming the immune system of all of the public for some reason at the same time. Sometime between 1982 and 2000, we had a, did something to the environment to totally decimate the protection system of our immunes, uh, immune systems. And the big tip-off to me in this process, you know, here I am in the labs developing chemotherapy and is so buried down the rabbit hole of the pharmaceutical model, but there was a big tip-off starting to happen in the late 1990s and early 2000s that... We were seeing diseases in what seemed like completely different organ systems in the population go epidemic simultaneously. Examples of this was certainly autism that you mentioned earlier. We had 1 in 5,000 children with autism in 1975. Today we have, just three weeks ago, released the most recent data, 1 in 36 children with an autism spectrum disorder. Species-specific, gender-specific, organ-specific diseases in the brain and peripheral cancers, all of which took off at the same time mm -hmm. in the mid-1990s. Autoimmune disease, oh, I mean, yeah. unbelievable epidemic starting in the late 1990s. And so this was like the cracks that were starting to form in my worldview that maybe there weren't a thousand different diseases because they all started going epidemic at once, which really begged the question, is there a root cause of the root cause of the root cause of all disease? In the same way that we've misunderstood the gut and what gut health means, we, we misunderstood soil for the longest time. And... Then World War II hit, and we did something interesting, which is we had this huge petroleum industry that was revved up bigger than it had ever been in the history because we had all tanks, jeeps, mechanized warfare for the first time in human history. On this scale, we had planes for the first time. I mean, this was like mm. full-out, totally different thing that had ever happened in history, and it was a, a world war, uh, much different than World War One in its scope. And so we see this huge petroleum industry that suddenly grinds to a halt because mm. the war is over. So we have this glut of petroleum, and we suddenly realize we can extract nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium out of that coal, that oil, and we started making chemical-based fertilizers for the first time. So they found a new marketplace for this oil, mm -hmm. and it was a great message to the farmers who were still suffering with bad dirt in the Midwest. Is like, you don't need to do crop rotation. You don't need to compost. You don't need to go back to thousands of years of farming right. tradition. Just spray this chemical on there. <laughs> yeah, forget about whatever you might have learned during right. the Dust Bowl. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah that, was, that was 40 yeah. years ago. That's right. ancient times. We're modern now. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> And so these farmers started using it, and it became a revolution for them. And it was actually called the Green Revolution of the 1960s. The and so the Green Revolution was actually use of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, or NPK fertilizers. And the NPK fertilizer did turn plants green because mm -hmm. nitrogen and phosphorus do that. But what was lacking in those plants for the first time in human history was the nutrients and the medicine that should always have been in that food. And so the plants became weak. Uh, just like a human being who lacks nutrients, their immune system goes down. And when a plant's immune system goes down, it becomes prone to viruses, pests, and it can't excrete the stuff from the root system that would keep weeds at bay. And so now the plants are getting you know, attacked from the outside, if you will, and the chemical, farmer, chemical industry says, no problem, here's a new chemical weed killer, here's a pe pesticide. And so the farmers got themselves locked into this codependent relationship with chemical fertilizers and chemical drugs for the plants to keep them alive despite a failing biology underneath the surface there. Right. Akin to taking a drug 
to deal with the symptoms of some ailment that you have that creates a whole battery of side effects that then require you to take another drug to deal with those. It's just a, an environmental version of that. It's exactly the same thing. In fact, I mean, all of this has sounded like a lot of bad news, but identifying a problem is so much of the solution. Mm-hmm. You know? And so now that we identify the problem, look, we've, we've put into our food chain a chemical that deletes the ability to build a healthy human body. We've put into the food chain a chemical that deletes the medicine out of our food. So we, we build a disease body. Body. We build a food chain that doesn't have the medicine in it, and then we take away the most you know, vital thing, which is this microcosm, macrocosm phenomenon you just talked about. So far, I've been describing to you that we are losing the identity between the outside world and our immune system by the breakdown of these membranes. We get leak. That's literally taking away self-identity from the immune system, and so we get autoimmune disease where we're starting to react to our own body as if it was foreign. In the same way, at the macro level... I believe we're losing our self-identity as human beings as we start to leak. And we start to become majorly depressed, panic disorder. We start to get lost down these rabbit holes of doubt, insecurity, fear, guilt. We have spiritual crisis. We have relationship crisis that's on an epidemic level equal to to cancer and beyond. Uh, The ability to stay in human relationships seems to be the most complicated thing that we could possibly endure right now. It's because we are literally losing self-identity at the cell level because we are eating a chemical that breaks our self-identity at the cell level. The more we can think about the body as being inherently and innately wise, the the easier the process of healing is, right? Because instead, inflammation is really, it's, it's just a messenger that is indicative of a need to balance. This is literally, physiologically, all it is. It's not a bad thing. It's not a good thing. There are elements that if they become chronic, can, you know, degenerate the body. There are elements that are regenerative, right? But what's interesting about it in in the research that I've explored is that the body doesn't discriminate. So your psychological stress, your emotionally suppressed arenas, um, your deeper spiritual questions, and your physical exposures, you know, artificial foods and, and toxicant exposures and, you know, lack of sunlight, lack of movement, it all registers the same. The, the body doesn't actually know. You can have a psychosocial stressor or a physical stressor, and it reads the same on a cytokine level. To me, that's fascinating because we like to, in, in conventional medicine, think of them, you know, well, there's the mental, emotional, that's kind of over here, but really what we're here for is the body. And if you have blood sugar imbalance or caffeine's just not a good fit for you or, you know, alcohol's throwing you all over the place or you have, you know, gluten or dairy antigenicity or you know you have a b12 deficiency it's a simple stuff the body is so forgiving within weeks you could literally be a different person also known as more yourself until you understand that the body doesn't make mistakes it's not here to bother you right and break down on you and 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 that these health crises whether we identify them as hormonal or or mental emotional or gastrointestinal or you know, oncological, whatever it is, are, are your, it's your life invitation to wake up, you know, and, and to begin to really align with who you are, how to take care of yourself, what you're here to do. And anyone who's, who's recovered or put, you know, a condition into remission or beat the odds, so to speak, will tell you the same thing. They wouldn't trade it for the world. And it was the, the moment of choice, you know, to say yes to it and walk towards it, walk through it. Um, rather than just try to continue with business as usual, papering over your symptoms in an endless hamster wheel of trying to stay ahead of them. A sickness happens 
and it results in, a, in an immune reaction and a healing process. I think that's what's happening to our society right now. We have a sickness and a disease on the planet of loss of self-identity and human consciousness of our purpose here, only to trigger the ultimate healing process, mm -hmm. which is to realize that we're all one. We are all on one mission to find truth in ourselves and through one another. We're, we are calling in community. We are going to overcome the isolation of our cell phone era. We're going to start to touch each other more. We're going to hug each other more because we have to. And that's a beautiful healing process that I already see afoot in the world around me. And I, I'm blessed to be able to go and speak all over the world right now. And I'm blessed in that journey to see humans changing their macro consciousness as they change their diet, as they change their nutrition, as they get in touch with their food chain, as they put bacterial and fungal communication networks back into their body. They come back 18 months later to my clinic and they'll say, Doc, I just left my husband. He's been abusing me for 35 years and I finally realized I don't deserve that. Mm -hmm. And I left. And so the, you know, a woman can in an instant suddenly realize as her boundaries go up at the gut, and at the blood-brain barrier, her macro boundaries of that's not spiritually and psychologically appropriate. I am me. I am. I am important. I am loved. I don't need that kind of abuse in my life. In the same way, I'll have somebody walk in and say, Doc, I just quit my job. I just started my company that I've been wanting to start for 30 years and wasn't confident enough to start. And I just realized I am ready, and I just did it. And so... I have this goosebump experience over and over again, despite some of the you know, tragedy that's in the talks that I give and the science that I now know. And I'm constantly seeing this bubbling up of human hope and human healing and consciousness coming on. And I take great hope in that. I take great excitement that if a few of us can become conscious and aware and awake right now, it has a ripple effect that is so quick.